I'm an inherently what if person as well. <laughs> like, you know, I always look at things and I'm like, oh, what if I'd done this or what if that? So not even necessarily projects, but just unfinished, unfinished things, like unfinished places or people even. <laughs> Hello, my name's Emily Anderson and this is Unfinishing, the podcast about things that are incomplete, abandoned or not public. You might be able to hear the sound of waves in the background and that's because I'm coming to you from a slightly different location this week. I've taken myself off for a few days to try to finish my own book. I'll try and keep you updated on how that goes. Hopefully the sound of waves in the background is nice and relaxing. My guest this week is Faye Latham, who is a writer, visual poet and rock climber based in the Lake District. In January 2020, she was awarded the Literature Wales Bursary for Writers Under 25 to support the development of her poetry. This resulted in her work being published in journals and magazines including UKClimbing.com, Lumen Journal, the CTC Rewilding Anthology and the Cambridge Literary Review. There are links to those in the show notes. In 2021, she was awarded a grant with the Society of Authors and her pamphlet, Ruin Nation, was highly commended in the Poetry Wales pamphlet competition. Faye is also one of the organisers of the brilliant book, film and outdoor world extravaganza that is Kendall Mountain Festival, which is where I met her. Her first poetry collection is called British Mountaineers and in it she uses a style called erasure poetry. This involves taking writing composed by someone else and erasing large parts of it so that what remains creates a poem. British Mountaineers was originally a text by the mountaineer Frank Smythe, who was a well-known climber active in the 1920s and 1930s. Faye and I talk about how creating something new from Smythe's text felt to her like a process of unfinishing it, of showing that the tale he told was not the end of the story. We also talk about how Faye turned to poetry partly because she found it hard to finish novels and about a possible erasure project for the future that has an environmental focus. Before all of that, we did start our conversation with a bit of climbing chat, so if you're not into that, then I'd recommend that you skip forward a bit. But Faye does have some really good stuff to say about overlaps between climbing going well and writing going well, so if you are here for the poetry, then it may still be of interest. All that remains for me to say is that if you have an unfinished, abandoned or private project that you'd like to talk about, you can contact me via email on unfinishing.pod at gmail.com and you can follow me on Instagram, which is at unfinishingpod to get the latest episodes. There's almost this hierarchy within climbing of like, oh, well, you're a proper climber if you're a trad climber (laughs) kind of thing. And I do really enjoy trad, but the most of the time I spend is probably indoor climbing just because it's so much more accessible and, you know, you can rock up on your own and just meet people. And obviously you could do that at a crag, but it comes at a large risk that there may not be anyone there. (laughs) Um, And so I really just enjoy all forms of climbing, I guess. And just go with what feels right on that day. Like there's some days where I'm like, I don't, I don't need to be scared today. Yeah. <laughs> I can just, you know, stay within my comfort zone, do something which feels safe. 
I would never want to judge anyone of what their favorite kind of climbing is. Mm. I guess if you enjoy a certain kind of movement that fits your body and that just matches you on that day or feels good for you, then just embrace it. And, Mm. you know, if it feels great, then, you know, go with it. (laughs) And you said there that there are some days where you don't need to be scared. Does that mean that there are some days where you do want to be scared? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I mean... In the moment, I never want to be scared. And I think (laughs) there was a period where I was doing a lot of trad climbing. I was living, it was, you know, in the summer between university years. And I was living at home in North Wales um, Mm -hmm. with my parents. And I was doing a lot of trad climbing. And yeah, and I did kind of want to want to be scared. But then my quota for that kind of very quickly stopped. (laughs) (laughs) And, Mm -hmm. And I think because... I felt the pressure to always have to climb at a certain grade and to push that grade, which is not a sustainable mindset, I think, with climbing. Yeah, in that summer, I did a lot of climbing slight, you know, pushing myself slightly above the grade I was comfortable at. And then I just hit a mental block. I was like, I just want to go for a walk. (laughs) I was like, I want to be horizontal. (laughs) I want to be on some flat ground right now. Um, And, you know, it just sometimes goes through peaks and troughs. There are times when you've got that buzz and you want to chase it. Um, Sometimes where it's harder to find that flow. And it's the same with writing. Like sometimes Mm. you can't force it. You can't, you know, you can sit there and wait for it to happen and you can turn up to the crag and think this could be the day. And sometimes it's not. And in that sense, turning up for it and just sitting there or waiting for some kind of creativity to hit. There's so much worth in that because you do have to be there for when the, creativity turns up um but then you can't you can't force it either sometimes some days just they're just not not as good and that's totally fine and it's just about letting that go and thinking but when the flow does come you know it feels great (laughs) yeah that's such a helpful way of looking at it I think next Mm -hmm. time I'm wanting to do something and I'm kind of turned up and it's not happening whether that's writing or whatever that's the mindset I'm gonna have to talk myself into I think because it can be difficult can't if you want to get something done and then you don't and then you beat yourself up about it but actually saying to yourself well had it been the day at least I was there (laughs) at least I was ready (laughs) absolutely and I think often the days which I turn up to the climbing wall and think oh I feel good today like you know my I feel like I've got a lot of energy I think they're the kinds of days where I put unrealistic expectations Mm. on myself of what I can achieve and the same with writing in that if I you know wake up feeling okay this could be a good day to be creative and then I sit down and suddenly the pressure mounts whereas when it's a kind of day where I think oh you know not sure what will happen today let's just see what happens I will Mm. that's when I feel I get into that mindset of flow there's always this complex relationship of route bagging or summit bagging, which is essentially ticking things off a list, which is a really fun thing to do, you know, and it's very satisfying having a tick list and thinking, these are my goals that I want to achieve. And I've just moved to the Lake District. <laughs> and, you know, I, I, I'm thinking, oh, now I want to I want to do the Wainwrights. <laughs> but then... <laughs> It's kind of this complicated thing of just because you've ticked something off doesn't necessarily mean you've completed it. And mm. how can you say that you've completed or finished a mountain? You know, that's mm. kind of odd way of looking at a bit of rock, mm. I guess. <laughs> yeah, that's a really good point. I guess it's not the mountain you've completed, is it? It's kind of a, it's your own goal that you've made up and 
imposed on it. Absolutely. And, you know, it is, you only complete the kind of personal meaning you've ascribed to that mm. certain climb. I, I used to really want to kind of tick things off and got into that obsessive climbing mode of thinking, oh, like I, I you know, the more you mm. do, the more addictive it is, I guess. And I was kind of in that mindset and, and I had this obsession of completing this certain route at home, which was called Brand Direct. I was in love with the route. I had, I became so obsessed with it because I had had an ex-boyfriend who had said, you know, oh, you're not strong enough to leave that. And I just kind of, you know, really got into my head. That's outrageous, by the way. <laughs> oh, it was totally outrageous. Um, and I, I, I kept thinking about it and that, I'd climbed a lot of the same grade. So I kind of knew mm. that I could climb it. And then a year later, I kind of turned up the crag and I was like, I'm going to lead it. I know I, I can definitely do do that climb. And when I did that and I got to the top and it's like, it's this beautiful kind of Juliet balcony. It's like the safest ledge you can ever, ever <laughs> be on. And I felt so, so whole and so complete mm. kind of thing and I'd proved something to myself which was such a meaning meaningful thing for me and I don't think any bit of rock will ever have as much meaning to me as mm. Brand Direct did after that point I completely let go of the idea of having to tick things off and having to complete things I was like I've proved to myself what I need to do or that I'm good enough essentially and actually mm. I was like I'm just going to do what I want to do now and climbs that feel good. I'd rather do easy classics that feel amazing rather than some hard route just for the grade, uh, which actually may not be that good of a climb, I guess. That sounds very liberating. Yes, it absolutely was. And I think that moment when I got to the top, I was like, whoa, it was the most euphoric thing I think I've ever felt. <laughs> um and I think in climbing and writing, it's that feeling I had on the top of Brand Direct of kind of teetering over that apex of joy, I guess, <laughs> and just every bit of your body feeling completely alive. Um, mm. It's that feeling that I'm chased when I climb and when I write. I don't necessarily chase a route to tick off, but I would chase that feeling that I have when I'm totally in the moment. So whatever climb that is, whatever grade it is, that's the feeling that I want to have. So moving on to your writing then, I know that you got into poetry after previously having been working on novels. Could you tell me about why you made that transition? Yeah, so I'd always, always loved writing stories and had always been creative as a kid and yeah, loved writing stories in my, in my free time and stuff. And I was a big reader and I loved fantasy and the classic teenage vampire <laughs> stuff. <laughs> All the dystopian. <laughs> exactly, yeah. I, I had a million first chapters of novels that were great concepts, but then I never, ever knew how to finish them. Um, mm. I would love to make a book now that was just completely comprised of first chapters that would be great I would be very much here for that <laughs> yeah I think it would be such a cool project um basically in the form of short stories I guess mm. uh, but they were all their own beginnings just because I can't ever think like how is this going to end <laughs> yeah. um, and I always yeah have a first great paragraph and then I'm like well I guess that's it that's <laughs> that's the story done um yeah. I got really invested in this one idea that I had when I was 
trying to write novels mm-hmm. um, where I was I was 14 and I was obsessed with this this series by Jasper Ford called The Air Affair. And it's all about these literary characters that kind of, they can move in between the worlds of other books and other oh, cool. f- other fictions. It's such a good book, that yeah. uh, it's such a good series. It's still one of my favourite series in the world. I thought, oh, I can, I, maybe I'll do a similar concept of characters in paintings being able to, able to move between paintings that was a really fun thing to write. But then again, I had a, a concept and could never go with it. And, mm. you know, I was I was 14 and I thought, oh, wouldn't it be so amazing if the evil character was like, someone was called Lisa the whole way and then they turned around at the end and they were called, their first name was Mona. And I was like, I was 14. I was like, wow, people are going to, oh my gosh, <laughs> the publishers are going to pick this up. It's going to, it's going to take the world by storm. <laughs> Yeah, what a twist. Exactly. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm a genius. (laughs) Um, So I had lots, you know, lots of little novels and stuff that that's their kind of projects, which I think I will never finish those. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Because I started them at a completely different age and a completely different time, but they're still valuable and they're still so fun when I look back and read them. And sometimes when you read them, it's like, how is this better than some of the stuff I write now? But it's because <laughs> I had no filter. Yeah. I had no idea of what was good, which actually is a sometimes a better way to write. <laughs> and what's your process like for finishing poetry? It sounds like you've got maybe fewer unfinished poems than you have unfinished novels. I'm actually not brilliant at finishing poetry <laughs> projects either, because I think with poetry, even more so, it's almost because they are shorter form, you have the freedom to really delve into each line. But then it means that for each poem, there could be so many different versions of the same poem. So it's hard to know which one is the one that is more done um, than the others, because there are different options, I guess, that I think I can choose. I have one which was a collection, which was called Ruination, but it was the ruin and nation had like a dash between them. I don't need to finish, but I would like to finish. Mm. Um, And it's kind of like an exploration of, you know, Welsh landscapes and slate quarries and things like that. And kind of the underground bomb shelters in Chamberis and stuff. And it's quite dark and there's lots of underground landscapes within it. But yeah, it's funny. At the moment, it's almost like an abandoned project because I haven't looked at it for so long. But all the landscapes in the poems are also very abandoned landscapes. And do you let other people read poems that you haven't yet completed or do they stay private until you feel as though they're more finished? Yeah, they do definitely stay private. I think poetry really started for me as a private thing anyway. It wasn't something that I ever intended on being open about, I guess, or it was just something that I enjoyed to do in my free time. I kind of, in drips and drabs, I guess, showed some people my stuff and then just my friends. Mm. Um, only the finished stuff, though. <laughs> if people did see my unfinished stuff, they'd be they'd think, what is this? Because <laughs> it doesn't make any sense, not even to me. I, I, have, I have this Word document on my computer, computer that's just 
a brain dump of stuff. <laughs> the best kind of word document. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, and then sometimes I go into it, it's like 80 pages of just absolute nonsense. <laughs> nice. That sounds wonderful. <laughs> yes, I guess someone could like make a book out of that, but it would be nonsensical and <laughs> not good. <laughs> So how did it feel then when you did start showing people stuff that that was more finished? Were you nervous about that? Yeah, really nervous, I think. And I still get really nervous. I think that's why almost I haven't finished, you know, the Ruination book, because I, I mean, like everyone, you deal with a lot of imposter syndrome and that's, and in the world of writing and publishing, that is huge. Mm. And I think that's really stopped me from completing that project and trying to finish it because almost, yeah, that imposter syndrome of thinking it's not good enough or I think that's really not affected me, but prevented me from getting it done. That fear of the publishing world. It's so scary. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, you're you're writing a book, aren't you? Yes. Yeah. So I guess you, how do you find it? Like, how do I find it? I'll be honest and say I'm very I'm struggling with motivation. <laughs> it's it's this close to being published. I'm I'm doing some final edits, but my word is it like pulling teeth at the moment. <laughs> um, all, yeah, and that's that worst bit when I think towards the end, yeah, it is that bit where you think I'm done. I'm yes. mentally done. It's the same of going on a walk. You know, when you're on the home yeah. run. Now I'm on the home run, I just want to be home. <laughs> yeah, and then coming back to your actual question, which was about publishers, it's tricky as well because my sense of this is done isn't the final say. So the final say is the publisher saying, yes, this is done, no more edits, thank you. Yeah. So when that decision is not entirely your own, it makes it even harder, I think. Absolutely, and I think I think that is what scares me a bit about the publishing industry, that as a writer, your work... It's so natural to feel, I guess, a bit possessive over your work. And, you know, it's scary having criticism over it. It's scary yeah. having other people question it, I guess. And then in the publishing industry, you know, your book is inherently a collaborative act. I think when you're a kid, you really romanticize the idea of publishing, of thinking, mm. oh, there's something in the world that's yours. <laughs> and <Yeah. laughs> the reality is is very is very different. And it doesn't mean it's necessarily a bad thing. It's just it's the reality is just different from that. And that it is something that you the writer is a small part of the book, essentially. I'm interested in the fact that you're talking about imposter syndrome there as well, because I mean this brings us quite nicely onto your book that we're going to be talking a lot about British mountaineers. Because I feel as though looking at it from the outside that you've had an enormous amount of success with that published book. It's it's Little Peak, isn't it? Who's published yes, it? Yeah, yeah, Little Peak Press. So I, I'm interested that you still feel imposter syndrome, even though you've had a really fantastic book. This book was basically written because I had writer's block. I think the root of that was feeling this sense of imposter syndrome, feeling that weight of expectation, I guess I'd put on myself to write to a certain level, which mm. really took the joy out of writing for me because I was so worried about how it was going to be read or what other people would think. When I was writing a lot of poetry, it was during the lockdown and I was, you know, you're really drawing upon your emotions when you're writing poetry and it's inherently a very introspective thing. 
And that can become a very heavy thing to do when you're on furlough. Yes. <laughs> Doing that, you know, being a full-time poet actually just didn't work for me, I think. And because it is so introspective and in the lockdown, you know, my poems just ended up being like, I am alone. Oh no. <laughs> I am sad. <laughs> Which I was like, no one wants to read this. This is <laughs> this this is not great. Um yeah. and I really pushed myself to be creative as a way of holding on to some sense of productivity mm-hmm. and then just hit a complete wall and I couldn't do any more. I was like, I've got no more words to give. I've exhausted my memories mm. <laughs> for, for things to write about. I needed to break out of this feeling of imposter syndrome or feeling like my writing wasn't good enough. And then I was reading a book. It was called Hotel Almighty. And it's a fantastic book of erasure poetry. And I read that and I was like, maybe this is the thing that could help me get out of this or to play with words again and to take ownership of language again in a way which is joyful. This book really was a way of getting out of that sense of writer's block or sense of imposter syndrome. And so much of the book itself does deal with that because the world of mountaineering also is somewhere somewhere which I think people have a lot of, and me too, have a lot of imposter syndrome. Thinking. I'm not one of these celebrity, amazing climbers. So how do I fit into this world where the, the narrative of, is only of triumph and tragedy? There's like no space for vulnerability. So what I wanted to do is create a space for that, for people to have that vulnerability or be able to express that more in the mountains and like, I guess in writing too. So could you, you've mentioned the style of poetry that you use a couple of times, which is erasure poetry. Could you explain just what that is? Yes, absolutely. So erasure poetry essentially is the erasure of someone else's text I mean it could be your own text too but yeah so it is the process of kind of I guess taking a pen or paint to a piece of paper and then you redact some of the words on the page and then the words that are left that you've chosen to leave uncovered can form their own poem and this podcast has got me thinking so much like you know (laughs) about unfinished projects and stuff and erasure poetry you're unfinishing someone else's work it comes with so many ethical questions to do that you know what would Frank Smythe who you know is not around but what would he think about this 21st century girl just being like yep I am gonna (laughs) gonna tip x the hell out of your book (laughs) so tell me about F.S. Smythe and his book British Mountaineers because this is the book that you've worked on for your erasure poetry Yes, yes. So he was an engineer and he the book was published in 1942 and he was a mountaineer and the book itself is a series of biographies on I guess the mountaineering kind of idols of the time. There's there's lots of elements of it that are very poetic in the way that it's written and very romantic too. But then there is also that sense of it is a very fictionalized history I guess in that the people that it depicts, like the the mountaineers in it, are idols and they are these heroes. There's not a she pronoun in the text. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, all stories of these pioneering adventure men going into mm. the mountains and getting on top of things. <laughs> um, yeah, and I wanted to interact with that and try and bring a new narrative to the text. Mm. So what was that new narrative that you were trying to bring to it and and what so you've mentioned particular things about this book that you 
maybe think needed addressing in a new historical context that we're in now. Was it primarily that that made you want to work on this book? Yeah, I think I wanted to take a feminist perspective on the book because when I was reading the book or when I came across it, I couldn't see myself in it at all, which obviously Mm. you don't have to see yourself in every story. But I thought, you know, as a climber, I want to feel like I'm part of this story in some way. And I just couldn't identify, I guess, with the way that the mountains were or the interaction with the mountains were being spoken about. There's one line in the book which says, Englishmen invented the sport of mountaineering, (laughs) uh, which is just, I mean, not true. (laughs) I think, Um, and, you know, as in it's so much more complex than that. And Mm. I wanted to create a new narrative thread which looked between the lines a bit more for a bit more vulnerability and allowed that kind of sense of self-doubt to creep into the text and that feeling to be valid in the mountains. In this book, it's you kind of feel that the only way of accessing those spaces, outdoor spaces, is if you are uber strong, uber macho, which mm. gives a massive barrier to so many people from accessing those places and feeling like they belong there. And you've mentioned this already, and, and also when we were talking about doing this episode, you said to me that you feel that British Mountaineers is maybe eternally unfinished and that when you're working on an erasure text, you're you're unfinishing another person's work. Could you explain a little bit more about what you mean by that? Yeah, sure. So I guess erasure, the way you read it, it's kind of depicted in the act of its own making or its own unfinishing in the sense that the reader is very much a part of that poem-making process. And the process of writing involves a very unique kind of reading where, you know, you're having to trace your finger along the page. It's, it's a very active form of reading. So, yeah, the poem itself in so many ways is never finished because it involves a kind of collaboration between the author and the reader, and they get very different things from the text. So the way I've written it, a reader has to also work their way along the page, trace their finger along. And some some of the poems aren't, I guess, necessarily easy to read because they're mm. fragmented along the page and stuff. And it's a very active reading, a very mm. active form of writing. You know, an erasure poem is never completely finished until all of the words are gone from the page. That's, that's the only time when it's done. So there's always something else you can get rid of. There's always something, an element of it not being done. Yeah. And that's interesting that you say that because I did want to ask you about maybe for readers who aren't familiar with poetry or erasure poetry, it might be a bit intimidating to navigate this kind of text. For example, I found myself kind of clinging initially to the bits of text that are still there and then moving to other bits of the page. But what would you, if you were going to give advice (laughs) to a reader about how to approach this text, what would you say? That I mean, that's a great question because it can be really intimidating coming across an unusual form. Mm. And poetry itself is already a form which I think people are very intimidated by because there is a pressure to understand. And I think in school, we are drilled into the idea that you need to be able to find a meaning or a justification Mm. in every single word in a poem and to get an A or, you know, to to succeed in having understood the poem, you have to be able to draw meaning from every single word and be able to justify that you get it. But then it's, I think, with poetry, 
it's so okay not to understand all of it mm. and to just if you find meaning in it for yourself if it makes you feel something to me that is the point of poetry not to be able to justify why every word is there and to be able to explain it erasure poetry I hope is a very joyful form of that and really encourages people to read in a playful way, to read in a different kind of way. And I would say to anyone reading, I would say just read it however you want to read it because it is a collaborative act and the reader brings so much of themselves to a text. And if they if they themselves want to ignore a word, that's fine mm-hmm. because that's kind of their <laughs> own form of erasure and that's yeah. and they're collaborating with it in their own way or if they want to get the original text and look for their own erasures you know that could be a fun thing or to 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 draw different connections between words and Mm. to not read them as they go down the page but to just look at different bits of the page and stuff and yeah to just play around with it and there's no right or wrong way of I mean, I guess of reading any poem, I think if you're enjoying reading it or if it's making you feel something, then that to me is the is the whole point of it. You've said a few times when you're talking about both writing and reading, actually, about looking for the joy in it and how maybe when you were struggling with your writings, the joy of the process had gone. Is joyfulness something that really motivates you when you are doing your writing? Yeah, definitely. And I think that's why erasure poetry became so important to me, because rather than looking introspectively when you're writing, which can be a very heavy thing to do, that's why erasure poetry just felt so freeing, because I had this external thing that I was kind of focusing on, and the constraints became so such a freeing thing that I'm not allowed to really necessarily look outside of the page for something else. And it just completely opened everything up to finding connections between words that you might not have found before. And joy is such an important motivator to write and to alter climb and to do, to do anything because, you know, there is obviously worth in sometimes pushing through something that doesn't feel so great and getting something done. Mm. Then the process itself, I feel like should be joyful, should feel good. And when it doesn't, then I have to evaluate, like, is this project worth finishing if I'm not enjoying the actual process itself? And coming back to Smythe's work, there's obviously you're telling a different story from his, but in using his work, there's also overlap. So for example, I was taken with how there are elements of humour in your work and Anna Fleming and her forward to your book comments on the fact that Smythe also has this understated comic element Hmm. were you consciously trying to keep certain elements for example having bits of a lighter tone or did that emerge more naturally from the things that you were taking away yeah so I think there's definitely a conscious element of humor in the erasing itself it's fun and it's playful so it lends Hmm. itself easily to a comic effect because you know, you you might be fitting together words that don't necessarily or grammatically belong together, which can be funny. And and yeah, there's definitely a blend in the text between my voice and Smythe's voice. Mm. And sometimes it's hard to know which is which. And there are some parts where it certainly feels like me speaking. And then other times where there are bigger chunks of Smythe's 
words left uncovered. And it feels like it's a collaboration, but it's also almost a, I don't want to say battle for ownership, but (laughs) yeah, there's this kind of conflict of our voices, of the trying to make something new, but also us both working together to create the story and create something new entirely. Sometimes there's a voice which appears, which isn't either of us, I guess, is this ghost that moves through the text, Mm. who's trying to kind of escape or get themselves out from beneath the words. Mm. And this, again, might be a slightly odd question, but did you find that you liked Smythe? That is, yeah, I think, I mean, I don't know. Yeah, I think I, there's lots of the stuff that he says in the text, which are really lovely sentiments of we should be in the mountains in order to enjoy them, not to compete with each other. But then lots of his text kind of contradicts that (laughs) in itself with the stories that it tells. So I felt a bit bad because I think ages ago when I put it on Twitter that, you know, oh, I'm writing about this book, like using Smythe's text. I got Mm. so many replies of people being like, I love Smythe. (laughs) You know, like, I love his books. And I was like, oh, no, you're going to hate my book because I've basically just gone and erased his text kind of this like very feminist you know I'm like oh I'm gonna erase this man's text it was very empowering but equally I have nothing against Smythe himself it was more what his book represented was a time uh, or like a particular kind of writing about the mountains which I think romanticizes the mountains in a way which isn't realistic and just doesn't give space for other narratives to appear or it kind of prioritizes certain stories rather than other stories I'm sure I I don't know maybe me and Smythe would have gotten along like a house (laughs) on fire who knows Um, But I also feel like I've probably done him quite a favour because I think an erasure text invites you to also remember the the previous text as well in some way. And so I hope people are talking about Smythe and Smythe's mm. stuff as well through my book. You know, I'm, I'm not an expert on Frank Smythe and I'm not an expert on mountaineering history. This mm. was just my way of thinking. I think we need to bring another narrative to this and to add another story to a kind of writing which just brushes over or you know erases a lot of history. I think that's really interesting because that brings us a little bit to what you mentioned briefly earlier about the ethical questions around erasure poetry because I think what you've hit on there is that there's an erasure but there's also an uncovering so like a lot of people might not have heard of Smythe before they come across your book and then it kind of uncovers him or his work Mm. via your book. I don't know if there's a question in there. I just thought it was an interesting idea. No, definitely. And I think, yeah, the ethical questions are something you really, I mean, you don't have to think about them when you write in erasure, but I think it's a good thing to be mindful of when you're erasing someone else's text. I think for Smythe's book, I really had to think how many copies were actually in the world because it's not currently in publication. So there was only a finite resource of the amount of books I could erase. Like if it was a book that I could have just picked up in Waterstones, then it's something mm. I could have been much more free with in experimenting with the erasures. But because there was this finite resource of Smythe's book, because they're not currently in print, I, I gave myself four copies of the text. I thought I will have some space for experimenting, but then there's also a kind of beauty in knowing that once a word is gone, there's no way of retrieving it to the realities of the text. And, there is a power in that. 
And this is important, actually, because what we haven't explained fully is that this was a physical process that you were working on. Yes. Like climbing, it's, it takes so much of your physicality and it's a very bodily experience in that, yeah, you are taking the pen to paper. You, it's not like a Word document that you can mm. think, oh, I'll just get rid of that actually now <laughs> and um, maybe have another edit and have a think. And in that way, it was very handy to being able to finish something because once I'd finished the page, there was no way of going back there and constantly editing. It was like, okay, that's done. And that part of the process is knowing that I can't go back and edit it. And there were some ones where I did heavily plan before and, you know, spent weeks kind of trying to figure out what the best avenue to traverse the page would be. But then there were others which I just thought, I'm just going to see what happens. I'm just going to put pen to paper and just move along the page and pick things out that call out to me in some ways. Afterwards, I would look at the page and think, okay, that's, it is done. It's complete. And part of the process is putting the pen down and just not picking it up again. In the end of the book, there's kind of this very, you know, going back to the imposter syndrome thing that we've spoken a lot about, you know, the, the last, I mean, can I say this? It's kind of spoilers, but <laughs> Go for it. The, last, the last line of the book is, I hope it counts. Mm. It's kind of this sense that, you know, does this process, is this process valid? Like, is this, is it an ethical thing to do to remove someone else's text? Have I done enough? Are the words on the page enough to convey what I'm trying to convey? Or is my experience of the mountains valid in mm. to other people? And it's it's taking in all of these, I guess, imposter syndrome kind of sentiments. Yes. Um, and the other thing that the physical process results in, one of the things that it results in is your book is a very beautiful object. Oh, thank you. <laughs> and that's, you know, you've done some fantastic things with the the images, for example, and that's not great material for a podcast, but people will have to buy the book. Um, so could you could you maybe talk a little bit about the images that you've included? Yeah, so image is, and that was one of the reasons I was so drawn to Smythe's text, because mm. the images in it are so beautiful. And text and image is such an, a big part of his original text and the way that he conveys the romanticism of the mountains, I guess, and how mm. he delves into it. So it was obvious to me that I wanted text and image to be a big part of that and for the visual element to go alongside the words. There's lots of pages where the words are kind of very fragmented and broken up along the page and stuff. You really have to try and find a way of navigating that by reading it, almost like a route, you know, yes. that you're, you're kind of route finding and route reading there. And then the visual element is really important for it to physically look as if it's breaking up on the page. You know, because it's so physical, then the page itself becomes its own landscape that you have to physically cross. You have to, you know, there's there's entry points and there's exit points, like a landscape. And, you know, even after finishing the erasures, you know, my hand would literally be cramping <laughs> from the pain of kind of the particular way I'd be holding the tipex and stuff and the concentration that it would take and my hand would, would hurt afterwards. The the visual element then becomes a great way of finding an entry route into it and mm. drawing these lines between the words that you have to follow almost like map reading. 
And I was interested also to read that Smythe was an early example of someone who made a career out of mountaineering, partly by getting a public profile, by giving lectures mm. and writing. You also work to organise Kendall Mountain Festival. And I thought that was an interesting bit of overlap, actually. And yes. I wondered if you had any thoughts on how the professionalization of outdoor pursuits has progressed since Smythe's time. Yeah, that's like a super interesting question and also such a minefield. <laughs> so yeah, I've, I've worked in the outdoors industry for quite a long time now. So whether that be working at climbing walls or in climbing retail shops and now yeah. at Kendall. And I feel very exposed to the idea of like the celebrity mountaineer, I guess. And I think the idea of the celebrity mountaineer really does persist from Smythe's time where these people in the text were idolized and their feats were fictionalized. In that portrayal of the professional adventurer or professional athlete, it does give little space for that, some vulnerability there. And then it does, I think, exclude a lot of people who may not have an innate sense of self-confidence or entitlement Mm. to feel like they belong in those spaces. So yeah, that that idea of the celebrity mountaineer is so, is really fascinating. And, you know, we still have so many of the ideas tied from these times of writing about the mountains in such a romantic way. And which isn't really realistic to the way that most of us interact with the mountains at all. But equally, the professionalization of of the outdoors in many ways is great because it gives bigger exposure to how people can get involved in the outdoors. For example, the opening up of climbing gyms and as being more accessible places to try climbing, you know, it means that more people can feel welcomed in, or I hope feel welcomed in those spaces and breaks down some of the barriers of getting involved. You know, that's why I really hope that and really believe that Kendall is doing, which in a really exciting way, it's making the outdoors feel more open you know, yeah, Kendall is one part of that bigger picture of trying to, yeah, make people get into the outdoors in and interact with it in a way which suits them in a way, yes. you know, doesn't have to be this macho summiting, getting to the top of things. Um, yes. It's such a interesting question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've kept you for ages and I'm aware of time, but I do just want to ask you finally about a potential new erasure project that you've mentioned to me that you haven't finished or or I think maybe started which uses a different one of Smy's books but has an environmental angle could you just tell me a little bit about that potential project yeah sure so it is the canvas for that for that project would be Smy's book which was written in 1930 which is a Katchenjunger adventure which is from kind of stories of the Himalayas and and it's much, much bigger than Smythe's book. Sorry, from British Mountaineers. They're yeah. both Smythe. <laughs> um, and this is a game where I'm like, people are going to think I've got this vendetta against Smythe because <laughs> I'm like only erasing his books. Um, but yeah, so I think in British Mountaineers, I was really interested in finding a narrative, a thing that connected each page and finding a story between the lines. For a new one, I'd want to be a bit freer and kind of just be able to focus on the page itself and not worry about the connections between them Mm. necessarily so much. If there was a thread going in between them, it would be a kind of a bit more symbolic rather than story-like or rather Mm. than having a character moving through them. So 
the thread I would want to pull together would be the kind of environmental angle. And Erasure Poetry really does lend itself to talking about the environment because of the irreversible nature of Erasure's poetic form. It means that when something's gone, it's gone forever. Mm. Just like, you know, how we are treating the environment, you know, there's we can really romanticize the poetic side of erasure of destruction is a creative act in its own way. And, you know, but then in the re- the realities of it, in terms of the real world of the environment, you know, that we have a finite amount of resources and when they're finished, there's, there's no way of getting them back. Um, and I kind of want to draw on that with erasure a bit more and, it's kind of something that I didn't deliberately do with British Mountaineers, but it mm. it got me thinking about it. it. You know, I think someone asked me, like, is there an environmental angle? And there wasn't necessarily in the story, but the form itself does draw upon those things in a really interesting way. And again, with ethical questions of, is it okay to be using the book as a resource, which is mm. finite, especially if it's out of print? the questions of is the art form I'm using an actually environmentally friendly art form I'm using a lot of tipex here (laughs) (laughs) I feel like I should seriously be sponsored by tipex I was about to say they should definitely have sorted you out with some sponsorship yeah literally I'm like come on tipex give me like an ad sponsorship guys like I'm doing a lot of work for you guys (laughs) you know I'm like tipex is art (laughs) but you know so it is thinking about those things environmentally you know so that would be the project I would want to do next there's that nice space when it's just a private thing that you can just do for yourself and which I think gives you a lot of freedom to experiment but then doesn't give me the pressure to actually finish it yes (laughs) which I need I need some external pressure um (laughs) you know otherwise it'll never get done So that was my interview with Faye. I had a really good time talking to her. She was a very easy guest. I definitely learnt a lot. I didn't know anything about Erasure Poetry before we met. I obviously really enjoyed hearing about Faye's idea that Erasure Poetry is a way of unfinishing someone else's writing. But I also liked in particular hearing about the different facets of Erasure, such as the ethical questions around altering someone else's work. There is a bit more of that to come if you are interested in listening. Faye and I carried on chatting after we'd finished the formal interview, if I can call it that, and we ended up speaking about the toppled statue of Edward Colston, also about the Banksy artwork that involved one of his paintings being shredded just after being sold, that's now called Lovers in the Bin. And we also talk about having the confidence of Stephen King to run with a weird concept. So, if you're up for any of that, do keep listening. If not, thank you for sticking with me this far, and maybe let me know what you think. My contact details, including what you need to do to get to other episodes of Unfinishing, are in the show notes.
it's almost like the Stephen King complex of, uh, I, I love Stephen King. Like I'm a mm. big horror fan. I've never read any Stephen King. I'll have oh to do gosh. that. Oh my gosh, you have to. They're, yeah. yeah. And um, yeah, like he always has the best concepts ever. There's always a bit where you're like, okay, where the hell is this? <laughs> it's like weird and cosmic. It's like, there's a phantom clown who's actually an alien. And you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. whoa. Okay, Amazing. Back. And I feel, I feel like that's what happens when I write. Like it will be, yeah. ooh, I've got this concept. And then I just will not know what to do. And I'm like, oh, okay, maybe I should just Stephen King it and like put some, <laughs> put some aliens in there. <laughs> and make it really weird. It's a lot of confidence um, required to do that, isn't there? literally yeah exactly and I think that was what was good with erasure poetry in that you you had to go with where the text took you Mm. you you could come with some preconceived ideas of what the text you know what you wanted to find Mm. and how you wanted it to be finished how you wanted it to look as a complete thing but you had to just go with the flow because you can't change what's on the page you know certain things would call out to me like I think because it was the lockdown it was very, very fitting that what I found in the text was someone who was trapped underneath mm. the snow and, you know, trying to make their way out of this avalanche in many ways. Like I felt myself in this emotional avalanche. of, mm. And so it was fitting that the words that called out to me were these feelings of trying to find a way out of the text and an, an escape route, I guess. And, you know, if it, I'm sure so many other people would find completely different things in the text that I, I couldn't find and couldn't see because those words just didn't didn't call out to me or I didn't find those connections. And I'd love to see how someone else would unfinish Smythe's work yes. <laughs> with their own form of erasure. Just out of interest, what have you what have you done with the original books that you were physically working on? Yeah, so there's some people will be horrified (laughs) they're all they're all so I've got this like big box of all of all the books and what I would do was because it's an old book it's like bound and you know has thread between each page yeah you know physically kind of cut the thread and take the pages out and then and then I would erase that page I have three maybe versions of Smythe's book where there's it's just the kind of hard jacket of the book without Mm. anything in them (laughs) Uh, and I've kind of have all of the pages themselves kind of stacked up I think it would be cool to like put the pages back in the book how they were yeah cool Um, yeah that would be kind of a nice thing a nice thing to do or to kind of present them in an exhibition format or something yeah I was wondering about that yeah yeah, and I think that's something I am going to do. I'm going to go to the Aran Mountain Festival this year and kind of mm-hmm. have them displayed. Oh, which, cool. Yeah, which will be really, yeah. really nice. And there's the kind of draw to want to touch them. And you can't really when it's it's a printed book. That's great. And yeah, and I'd love to do a bigger thing with it. Um, you know, if I need to frame them, that's another thing I haven't finished. You know, they're just <laughs> in a box, in a, in a room. You know, just kind of just there. And I need to finish the project of just getting them framed and almost preserving them because you know that damn entropy means that everything's going to disintegrate one day. Mm. <laughs> I mean, I guess the one thing that we didn't. Yeah, maybe if we can talk maybe about, I guess, erasure in popular culture itself, maybe. Mm-hmm. 
we, we see it in loads of popular culture now, like the whole question around Colston's statue in Bristol and the toppling of it. And, you know, a lot of the criticism that that got was it's erasing history, but people had been campaigning to get rid of that statue mm. for 50 years or more. And when it was erased, more people were actually then talking about the history. So it wasn't an erasure of that history, I think. It was a means of actually opening it up for discussion again in a new, different way. More of an addition. Absolutely, yeah. It's an, it's an addition to it. And in that, for, in that way, you know, erasure is a very creative act. And you're thinking it's not about what you're removing, but it's what you are adding to that conversation. Yeah. Am I right in thinking that they put the toppled version, if I can call it that, did they put that in the museum? Yes, yeah, they yeah. did. Which... Is, is another part of adding to that history and adding yeah. parts to the conversation. You know, it's the same kind of discussion of a few years ago where, do you remember that Banksy painting that got shredded? In yes. The yeah, <laughs> great reference. Yeah. Yeah, it's like, it's that, that's another form of, you know, erasure. Yeah. The finishing in that sense is, is very destructive, but it was such a huge kind of political statement about the art world and about the way art is sold and I also thought it was very funny exactly exactly there's like a very comic element to that as well and also very very recently the stop oil campaign the way that you know when they threw the soup on the painting and stuff and it was kind of that discussion of why is everyone so so mad about a painting being destroyed like that is such an evocative thing for us and it's Mm. right to be mad about a painting being destroyed but it's the stark difference we have of we kind of totally brush over the destruction of the environment and I think because we can't visually see it as starkly as a painting being destroyed because it's happening in the background it's easier for us to ignore maybe especially like in the western world like whereas in other parts of the world it's less easy to ignore and it's really happening but yeah, I was like, oh, I need to mention the. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm glad you did. I'm glad you yeah. did. You know, when you were asking about, like, what do I think of Smythe? That is mm. like such an interesting question because uh, nobody's really asked me that. And I think I could get really heavily criticized probably for destroying <laughs> this man's work. You know, what I've hoped to do is like add some, become a part of the conversation in a, in a different way.